open up with a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the the beauty of the day. It's a beautiful sunny day, Lord, and uh, we thank you for the blessing of the rain that you've given this week, and we just thank you for the blessings that you give us all the time, Father. Father, as we look into your word today, we just ask your blessing upon this time, that you would show us the things that you want us to, to see, that you would teach us, Father, and you would help us apply it to our hearts, that we would leave this place today different than what we were when we came. We just ask this all in Jesus' name. The children can be dismissed to Children's Church. Good morning. It is a beautiful day. It's a beautiful morning to be together here in God's house. And uh, this may be problematic. May I ask you a question to uh, start things out here this morning? How many of you frequently get the feeling that you could use some rest? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's pretty much everybody. Um, you know, life is hard. And not only is life hard, life is unrelenting. You know, I, I mean, you get up each day, you stand up. You move forward, you do it again. And life is wonderful. It's a gift from God. I mean, think of the day. I was thinking about this driving in here this morning. Just, my word, how beautiful it was. Uh, you know, after all the rain, you know, you, the, the, everything starts to green up, and you see the beauty of, of the earth and, and the mountains and, and just the, the beautiful sky this morning and all those great big white fluffy clouds. I mean, what a glorious morning. You know, the beauty of the things that God's created, the, the relationships that we have. You know, the friends and the family, the people we love, our, our church family. You know, we truly are brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's a wonderful thing to be here together. It really is. I, I mean, I, I don't really understand people that don't want to partake in being together on a Sunday with each other. Because it's a glorious thing to be with one another. And to celebrate God together. So life is wonderful. But every one of us knows that interspersed with all the wonderful things in life are also a lot of hard times. I, I mean, as I look over this audience today, I know what some of you are going through. You know, the, the illness that you're fighting, the, the loss that you've suffered, the heartbreak that you have. The financial difficulties, whatever the case may be, every one of us is either going through something right now or will be going through something very shortly. That is just the nature of life. It's unrelenting. It is good and bad, constantly mixed together, and that is ever since the fall. You know, it's summertime. It's vacation time. So I, I know some of you just got back from vacation like this, this, this week. We love vacations, but, but don't you feel like vacations, you know, you, you're there, you're having a great time, and they're over just like that? Isn't that how they feel? The weekends are the same way. You know, they're like little mini vacations. Yeah, every Monday I go back to work, and, and it's unfailing. I will hear this every Monday. 
People greet one another. Hey, how was your weekend? Oh, a great weekend. Had a great weekend. But man, it went by so fast. Why do the weekends go so fast? You hear it every week. It's because deep down inside, you know, we really long for that sense of rest and of peace, of something that lasts. That's kind of like big daydream, isn't it? That one day we'll turn a corner and there will never be anything bad ever happen again and we won't have to deal with it, you know, and everything will be just great from that point on. That day doesn't happen this side of the grave. It just doesn't. But God understands that we need rest. He gets it. And today we're going to look at God's rest. That's the main subject of our passage today. Glenn kind of introduced it last week, and you can turn in your Bibles in a, you know, a while to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. But Glenn really kind of introduced this last week because what he talked about last week in chapter 3 of us not hardening our hearts, not grumbling against God, kind of introduces the concept that we see in chapter 4, and that's the idea of God's rest. In fact, let me read verse 19 of chapter 3 because it segues right into chapter 4. So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. Now, I want you to follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 13 of chapter 4, and then we're going to look at this idea of God's rest. It says, God's promise of entering his rest still stands, so we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news, that God has prepared this rest, has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger I took an oath, they will never enter my place of rest, even though this rest has been ready since he made the world. We know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter, but those who first heard this good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest, still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest, but if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. All right. Rest. What is meant here by rest? That is really the dominant feature of this entire passage, and it's also the hardest thing to determine. 
This is a greatly debated passage amongst Bible scholars, and there's all sorts of ideas about what is meant by this rest. Is it a place? Is it a state of being? You know, is, is it something that is all future, or is it something that we can have now, or is it some kind of combination of, of, of all of those? It, it's, a, it's a highly debated topic. Well, today, we're going to take a crack at trying to understand what God means here by this rest, and try to see how we can apply that to our lives. A, a couple things that we can see right away is that this is God's rest. We see in the first six verses of, of, of chapter four, and, and then, you know, then again, even, even later on, he's, he says this rest is God's. Verse one, God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So in what way is this God's rest? Well, the first thing that he makes a connection with is he makes a connection with the creation. Say, so God rested after the, the, the creation of the world. Well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that God got tired. You know, God didn't get tired and he needed to sit down and take a break like we do. God didn't, like, wasn't mentally drained after creation. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God never gets tired. He doesn't need rest in that sense. So one thing it seems to mean is that God ceased from his creative activity. God was finished with what he wanted to do, and he, he brought the creation to an end. He created everything in the universe, and he said, this is very good. And God was finished with that. That's one thing it means. He ceased from that activity. Another thing that rest means there is there was satisfaction for God. God looked at it and said it was good. You know, it's kind of like you know, we use that phrase, uh, you know, that, that we look at a job well done and we take great pleasure in a job well done. Well, that's kind of what God did in his rest. You know, God finished what he wanted to accomplish, he looked at it, he declared it good, and, and, and God essentially saw what he had accomplished and admired it, enjoyed it, enjoyed the relationship with Adam and Eve. You know, the Bible tells us he, he walked with them in the, in the garden, it was his habit to come in the cool of the evening, and, and, and evidently he took uh, some sort of bodily form, and he walked with them in the garden, and he communed with them. And that's kind of a picture of what it's always been meant to be. That's what God's always wanted with his people, that communion with his people. So that's a, a part of an idea of what is meant here by God's rest. But see, the problem with that applying to us is, one, we weren't there at the creation. You know, and, and we can't go back in time to, to take part in that particular type of God's rest. But yet somehow, this is still God's rest. Another thing that we see here is this idea of God's rest is, is compared to Israel entering into the promised land. Glenn talked about that last week, that the, the, the verse that you see quote, or the verses you see quoted quite often in chapter three and chapter four is Psalms 95. A section of Psalm 95 where David, many, many years later, is looking back at what was done uh, when Israel failed to enter into the promised land, and, and, and David is writing a psalm about that. 
Led by the Holy Spirit, David is commenting on that. And that's the, the part here where it says, today uh, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. In my anger, I took a, an, an oath that they will never enter into my rest. He's talking about the children of Israel and why they wandered for 40 years you know, in the wilderness. So the rest is compared to that. But again, that's hard for us to apply that because we can't go back in time to the wilderness. Some of us next year are actually going to Israel. I, I know a lot of people are very excited about that. You know, we will enter into that promised land, but it's not going to bring everlasting rest to us when we get there. It won't. You, you know, you realize Israel went into the promised land. Joshua took them in after 40 years were, were over. Did they have eternal rest? No, they didn't. No. Yes, at times they, they enjoyed the fellowship of, uh, and the peace and the security of being in that close relationship with God, but that only lasted for so long. So often they disobeyed God, they, they, they sinned against God, they worshiped other gods. They would be invaded by people, and, and the rest that could have been there for them was gone. So he uses both those ideas, the rest of creation, that, that God kind of inaugurated a rest when he rested. And also that idea of going into the promised land, of going into that place of rest. The writer here uses both of those ideas as a way to try to understand this, but neither of them really completely give us everything that we need to understand this. You know, through the years, there's, there's been uh, many different ways of trying to understand this rest. There have essentially been five things. One is God's creation rest, as we just mentioned. Another one is the Canaan rest, as, as we also mentioned. But the other three, um, you know, one is the Christian spiritual rest. You know, the ability that we have to rest in Christ when we are living obedient, victorious lives for, for Christ. That idea of our spiritual rest, that's another possibility of what is being talked about here. And the other two things, that's more of a state of being. The other two things are places or destinations. Some people believe it's talking about the millennial kingdom, the rest of the millennium. And others believe it's talking about eternity. It's talking about heaven, the ultimate rest. So there's all these different options. So what do we do with that when we read something like this? Let me read something to you by Dr. David Allen. In the, uh, his, he wrote the Hebrews commentary for the New American uh, commentary. And he made this helpful list of all these different options. But here he, he, he gives an analysis of these five options. He says, options one and two do not apply to the readers of the epistle or to Christians today. The difficulty is choosing between the final three options. The context of verses, verses one through 11 make it difficult to choose between a strictly present or a strictly eschatological or end time, last days, strictly last days meaning. Choosing one over the other leaves something unexplained in the verses. The best approach is to see a reference to both. 
Such a dualism is not unknown in the New Testament. It's reflecting of the already and not yet tension that pervades the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels as well as what we find in Paul's letters. And I like that approach. It is something that we do see often in Scripture. There's a sense that we can have this rest right now. But there's also a sense that the ultimate fulfillment of it is later, in the end, when we will truly be ultimately at rest with God. So that's what we're going to look at here today. What, what does that mean? Well, in some ways this is a place, it's a destination. It, it is the ultimate, as we said, the ultimate end. In some ways it is a state of being, but certainly not just that. It's now and it's future. It, it's essentially where God is. It, it is having that, all, that, that sense of God's presence in your life all the time. Let me ask you a question, and, and, and you don't have to raise your hands, so this is for something for you to answer just in your heart. How many of you truly feel the sense of God in your life each and every day of your life? If you had to really be honest with yourself, how many of you feel God's presence in your life each and every day? You do realize that if the answer to that is I don't, it's not because God doesn't want you to feel his presence each and every day. It has to do with the fact that we go oftentimes long periods in our week where we really don't give much of a thought to God. That's just reality. There are so many things competing for our mind, so many things competing for our attention. And many of them good things, some of them not so great things, many of them things that we have to deal with. But they invade kind of our mind, they invade our being, and the next thing you know, that's where our focus is on. Well, part of this, of understanding this rest is understanding, you know, how God wants to be present in our lives at all times. He is there. He wants us to know that he is there, to sense that he is there. It's trusting him and obeying him. You know, what, what does the Bible tell us? The just shall live by faith. Do you ever think of what that means? It doesn't just mean I get saved at that particular moment in time and then the rest of my life I don't really have to think about it anymore. I don't have to apply that faith to my life anymore. That, that's not what living by faith means. Living by faith means every day living and walking by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the same thing really as sensing God's presence constantly in your life. Living by faith every day. Do you know you need God at every moment of your life? Do you really acknowledge that? Isn't there so many times where we kind of just say to God, hey God, you can go ahead and sit this one out. I've got this one under control. I, I can handle this, God, on, on my own strength, my own power. We think like that all the time, don't we? But the Bible says the just shall live by faith. Exercising that idea that God is, is, is necessary in my life, that he is always in my life, that I cannot do this without him. 
That takes a self-awareness. It takes a consciousness of the importance of God in our lives. It's trusting him and obeying him each day, dwelling in him. You know, Glenn just finished that John, the passage in, in, in John, you know, in, in John 15 where it talks about, I am the vine, you are the branches. You know, without me you can do nothing. But we are supposed to be connected, you know, to the vine. We are the branches that are connected to the vine. And all the power that we have to live out the spiritual life for Christ comes from the vine. That's where the life is. That's where the vitality is. And that's kind of what he's talking about here. Dwelling in God, putting our rest in him, our faith in him. We're already, if if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're already indwelt by the spirit of God. God already dwells within you, but do you dwell in him? Do you rest in him? Do you think about him? Do you really put your trust in him each and every day? It's an active, living thing. It's having the confidence and the peace of true belief and fellowship with God. Do you have confidence in your Christian life? Confidence that God is enough to get you through anything that you experience. That doesn't mean you're going to like it. doesn't mean you will never doubt. But it means that shouldn't be a, a, a way of being for you. There should be a confidence that we have in God, a peace that comes with that confidence that no matter what I experience in my life, God is all I need. And God will see me through. That's total reliance. That's trust. I want us to think back to the time of Israel in in Canaan. What was their real sin? Well, the passage tells us, doesn't it? Their disobedience was on belief. They watched God do miracles all throughout that journey. And yet, when it came time to enter the land, they still didn't believe, did they? They saw what God could do, and they sent in the spies, you know, Joshua and Caleb, and they came back and they said, yes, it's everything God promised. It's, it truly is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's everything we could ever want. It's, it's kind of almost like a little mini Eden. All we have to do is trust God. Oh, yeah, there's giants there, but so what? So what? No giant is bigger than God. Let's enter in. What did the people say? No, 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 that's too much. That's too much. We, there's giants there. All they could see were the giants. They couldn't see how big God was. No matter what he had done, all the miracles he'd shown them. See, they, they didn't exercise that constant state of belief in God, that trust in him, no matter what they had seen. And they didn't find that peace, and they wandered in the wilderness and ultimately died in the wilderness. They missed that great promise that God had to them of that place of, of, of rest and fellowship with him. And it's interesting, he never left them He stayed with them. He still called them his people. Still performed miracles for 40 years. Never left them. 
but he swore by an oath, they will not enter into my rest, only Joshua and Caleb. You know, this sense of living in Christ all the time is a sense of living in rest. That doesn't mean everything is also all of a sudden great. In fact, a lot of you know, like the moment you got saved, a lot of things in your life became much more complicated. You know, now all of a sudden the friends that you used to have didn't want to hang out with you anymore family maybe didn't want to be with you anymore. It changed your life. You couldn't do the things that you used to do anymore. It doesn't mean everything all of a sudden gets easy. But it does mean God is there with you through everything. That he'll take you through it. You'll still experience the same suffering, the same pain. Life will still be hard. Now you have God with you. I can't tell you the amount of times through the years I've talked to people who've just lost a loved one or, or were going through some sort of really terrible trial in their life, but they will say to me, I don't know what people who don't have Christ do when they go through this. I, I see a lot of you shaking your heads, and I know I've sat and talked with you about that loss in your life. I don't know what people without Christ do. How do they experience this without God in their lives? Because that's the thing. When your reliance is in God, even when you go through the horrible things in life, you know God is on your side and the power to experience it is there. It's there. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's fun. But it means you'll get through it. And, and you know, the really wonderful thing is God uses those things to make us more like his son. You know, he uses those experiences to, to make us stronger and make us more Christ-like. That's how life for the Christian is supposed to be. It doesn't sound much like rest, does it? But in a way, it is. It's resting in God. It's the, it's the peace and the confidence that comes with that true belief, that true faith in God, with putting your trust in him. That's what comes with that. But you know, it obviously is much more than that because the ultimate end of that is one day we will be with Christ eternally. One day we will experience him in, in the, the truest sense of how he made us to experience him. There will be no more sin, there will be no more trials, and we will spend eternity in his presence worshiping him serving him. We don't know what it's going to look like. But we do know the Bible says it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be incredible. It, 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 you know, everything God meant Eden to be when he walked with them in, in the cool of the evening is what eternity will be. When we enjoy God forever. That's the ultimate rest. But, you know, you can have a sense of that, a taste of that right now, in your life right now. That is what I believe he's talking about here when he talks about God's rest. There's an ultimate fulfillment to it, but there's also a present fulfillment. There's a present way that you can live attached to God, connected to God, confident in God, at peace with God. 
Now, there's another question that kind of goes with the idea of what is the rest. You know, the bulk of this passage today is kind of talking about what that rest is. But there are some other questions that come up. One, how do we get the rest? How do we have this? Well, we've kind of answered it already, but it's faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we we see that over and over again in the passage. Look at verses 2 and 3. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Yeah, it's all about putting your faith in God, putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. God's rest is there for the people to enter, but those who first heard this good news, that's the same as gospel. In some of your Bibles, it has gospel. That's what gospel means. It means good news. Okay? That they heard this good news, they failed to enter because they disobeyed God. And as we've already seen, that you know, over and over it says their, their dis- disobedience was the fact they didn't trust God. They didn't believe God when he said, hey, I'll take you into the land, and those giants don't matter. The overwhelming experiences that you see when you look into that land, they don't matter because I'm greater than they are. And I'll give you the blessings if you just trust me. But they didn't didn't do that. He says it's there for those who, who will do that. I want to jump over into to, to next week, just one verse. Look at verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. We have a great high priest, Jesus, who's already in heaven. He's achieved the final destination already. He's where we want to be. So hold on to him. Hold on to what you believe about him. Hang on to Christ. How we get this rest ultimately is in faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to come to God. That's the only way to be saved. Is by putting your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. That is the only way. But you know, once you're saved, that's also the only way to live your life. That's the only way to truly live the Christian life, to live it in the way that God wants us to live it, is to put your your total trust in Jesus Christ. To understand God is all we really need. He's sufficient. When we do that, we find rest. You know, there's an interesting thing here that's happening with the names Joshua and Jesus. How many of you know that they're the same name? They're the same. Yeshua. Joshua is is how we pronounce, essentially, Yeshua in English. It's how we look at the Hebrew word and we bring it into English as Joshua. When you bring it into Greek, it's Jesus. They're the same name. And, and you know, when you're looking at this here, if you're looking at it in the Greek, you, you, you can't tell which is which. 
You know it by the context. You know, in, in, in look at verse 8. He says, now if Joshua, if Yeshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. Well, we know that's talking about Joshua because he's the one who took Israel ultimately into the promised land, but even in taking them in, they never truly had the rest that God wants them to have. Now, scholars are very torn on whether there's a purposeful wordplay here that he's playing these two names against one another to show that one is a, was not able to bring them into rest and the other one is. Personally, I side on the, on the side of, yes, there is a, a definite wordplay here. Joshua, for all his, his faith, all his greatness, could not give them the rest that God can give them. He, he, that's because it wasn't his job to do that. He has no capacity to do that. It wasn't his prerogative. It's only God's ability to give you the true, ultimate, lasting rest that ends in heaven. Joshua could take them into the promised land, but the people still continued to sin against God, and and that rest that they had there was always intermingled with all the fighting and all the disobedience and the idolatry. That's not a slam on Joshua. It's just an admittance that Joshua couldn't do what the people really needed. But Jesus Christ can. We already saw that Christ is superior to the angels. We saw that he's superior to Moses. Now we see in this passage he's superior to Joshua. Basically, the name means Savior. But Joshua couldn't save. Jesus can. He's the only way. He's the only way to get there, and he's the only way to live in that state of of, of obedience and and peace and confidence in God in this life. It's only Jesus that can do that for us. So that's the how. Now, another tricky question with this is, well, can we lose that once we have it? Can we lose that rest once we have it? Well, here's kind of a two-part answer. You can lose the present confidence that you have in God. You can absolutely lose that. By falling away from God, by, you know, not having God foremost in your life, you kind of lose that sense of God in your life and that confidence that you have in living with him every day. But can you lose your salvation? Can you lose the ultimate rest? No, I don't believe you can. A couple things I want to point out here. One is, again, Israel. If they're the metaphor here for the falling away, God always continued to be their people. You know, one of the ones who didn't enter into heaven was Moses. Does any of us really think that Moses is not in heaven with God? In fact, we saw some evidence of that. Glenn pointed out last week the Mount of Transfiguration, where, where Moses and Elijah came back and stood with Jesus. But you know, it's amazing how connected Scripture is. That's one of the things I love about Scripture. What did God say? Like, like you know, as Glenn pointed out, you know, the disciples, man, they're all into like, oh my goodness, it's Moses and Elijah. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Let's build like a temple here and let's just stay here forever. This is awesome. 
And they got their eyes off of Jesus. And God's voice rang out, this is my son, listen to him. See, it's still only Jesus that can get you there. But Moses for sure is there. Later on in, in, in chapter 11, in, in what many have called the Hall of Fame of Faith, you know, two men, there, there are more verses applied to two men than anyone else, Abraham and Moses, those two. So even though Moses did not enter the promised land, Moses is absolutely in heaven with God. His spirit is with the Lord. I don't think we can ultimately say that all of those people other than him who fell in the wilderness are all in hell either. I don't believe that that, that is something that we can say. Another thing about that is you notice there's nothing in this passage about being kicked out. There's only about whether you enter in or not. That's the whole question. Whether you enter in or not never, not, never that you can be kicked out. You don't see it anywhere in the passage. Again, let me go back to Dr. Allen in the New American Commentary. The kind of a breakdown he gives here. This is, this is talking about last week, stuff that Glenn talked about last week, in not hardening your heart. He says, verses 7 through 19 of chapter 3 call for serious theological reflection. The influence of Numbers 14 is so pervasive in Hebrews 3, 7 through 19 that it must be studied carefully. Even though the people corporately sinned against God at Kadesh, and and, and Kadesh was the place, Kadesh Barnea is the place that they were going to cross into the promised land and they failed to cross in. They they refused to to trust God. That was a place called Kadesh Barnea. That's, That's what he's speaking about there. Numbers 14.20 explicitly says that because of the intercession of Moses, God forgave the people of their sin and still treated them as his covenant people. Yet because of their disobedience, they paid a high price. They were not permitted to enter into the promised rest in Canaan. It is clear that in the main clauses in these verses, the author addresses his readers corporately and assumes they were believers. To be part of Jesus' house and shares with him implies that they were Christians. Reference to the congregation corporately is followed by a conditional qualification that essentially says point A is true if point B is true. We have become partakers of Christ in the past if we hold firmly to our confession in the future is the sense the author intended leaving the readers to draw the conclusion that future perseverance indicates past salvation and lack of future perseverance indicates one was not truly saved in the past. In other words, the saved will make it to the end, the lost will not. We are never saved by our actions. We are never saved by our works, but our works do show whether we were saved in reality. If you truly ask Jesus Christ into your heart, if you truly put your faith in him, you will persevere to the end. If you don't, and we've all seen that happen, we've watched people who supposedly came forward and said a prayer, had a moment with God, and then they fall by the wayside and you never see them again. 
they don't continue on, it basically proves that they were never real in the first place. That's kind of the sense in Greek that is meant here. If A is true, then B is true, and vice versa. But if it is not, then you, you know, it is not. The, the, the Greek itself does not add up to losing salvation. He said, he goes on to say that is actually just the opposite of what the verse says. The clear implica- implication is well stated by Guthrie. Perseverance does not gain salvation, but demonstrates the reality that true salvation indeed has been inaugurated. Failure to hold on to one's confidence does not cause one to lose salvation. It indicates that one has not tr- was not truly saved in the first place. So it just doesn't add up to that. But it's still a warning. I mean, he says we should tremble at the thought that some won't make it, that some aren't real. You know, we should strive constantly with the gospel, strive to tell people about Christ, but also not just tell the lost, tell those who are around us, because there may be a chance that some of them have never truly put their faith in Christ. Teaching and preaching one another is is a dynamic part of our Christian experience. We're going to talk more about that in a second. So no, you can't lose it. But for those who fall away, there's a chance it was never real in the first place. And all of us can lose that sense of the peace and the confidence that we have in God if we cease to have him close in our lives. There's that saying that, that, you know, the phrase that Glenn always uses, keep short accounts. Keep yourself close with God is what that means. When you sin, and every one of us sins every day. John said, if, if you say there's no sin in you, there's, you know, the, the truth of God is not in you. You're a liar, he said. You know, we all sin, but the best thing is don't wallow in it. Don't stay in it. We all feel like we need some time away sometimes, but don't stay away long because the longer you stay away, the harder it is to come back with God's people. And then that peace and that sense of, of confidence in God starts to go away. Keep short accounts with God. Confess your sins. Stay close all the time. And you can live in that sense of rest. All right, one last question. What about these last two verses? For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. What does that have to do with the idea of God's rest? Well, based on what we've talked about today, I'd say a great deal. I tell you, let's take verse 13 first. And the reason I want to do that is because most of us never read verse 13. We read verse 12 
and we interpret that the way we want, and oftentimes we take it out of context, and we don't read verse 13 at all, which really supplies what is going on here. So let's look at what verse 13 has to say. Let me read it again. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Or some of you may have give, must give an account. This is talking about the power of God and the power of God's word. That God knows who we really are. He knows if we really believe. He knows if we are truly his. You know, we were just talking about the, the, the fact that, that, you know, essentially the writer of Hebrews is concerned that some of these Jewish people that he is writing to may not really have put their faith in Christ. And, and that they will be like the, 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 the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea, at, at, you know, when it comes to that, that key moment where they're under pressure and, and they have to make a decision that they won't go forward. That's what he's afraid of. He's afraid some of them aren't real. And here at the end of this passage, he tells them, you know, you can't fool God. You can fool one another. You may even be able to fool yourself, but you can't fool God. Everything is naked and exposed before him. You cannot fool God. He knows. You know, he can see through it all. You know, that's one of the tricky things for us sometimes. You know, we all, we all struggle with sin. And it's different for every person. Whatever the sin or sins that you struggle with, do you ever think sometimes, oh man, I... I'm glad nobody else can see that. Nobody else can know my thoughts. You ever think that? I know you do. Yeah, we all think that sometimes. And sometimes we even think, boy, you know, I'd love to talk to God about this, but I can't talk to him about this. This is just too awful. You realize how foolish that is? You know, God already knows. You can't hide it from him, so you might as well talk to him. He's the only one that can do anything about helping you through it, so you might as well talk to him about it. You can't hide anything from God. He knows the reality of who you are, of what you are, of whether you are real or not. And that's what he's trying to say here to these people. Now let's go back and look at verse, 13, or verse 12. For the word of God is alive and powerful, is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cut, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. See, let's be honest with ourselves right here. Most of the time when we read this, aren't we thinking of the lost? Oh boy, if I could only get them the word of God, you know. Well, it works on the lost. But you notice the context is not the lost? The context is the people in Hebrews. He's saying this to them. So God can see through whether you are real or whether you're, you're not. If you spend enough time in his word, it's going to sink down real deep and it'll start exposing who you really are, what you really believe. It'll get to the bottom of who you are. And that's what it's trying to say. This is a message to God's people, both the saved and the unsaved, who, who you know, are kind of portraying themselves as God's people. It's a message to both. 
If you want to really know what you're all about, spend a lot of time in God's Word. It'll expose to you what you really look like. You know, some of you guys have heard me talk about this before, but, you know, it's like having a great big mirror in front of yourself, saying this is who you really are. See, you know, the Bible, it, it gives us a portrait of what we are supposed to look like and what, in the end, we will look like. That's Jesus. Jesus is the picture of what we are to be. God's word is the mirror that you hold up and says, but this is who you really are right now. You know, that's part of what it does for us. It gives us that picture of Jesus, too. But it also exposes to us the reality. We see all the warts, all you know, all, all the blemishes, we see all of that when we look in the mirror of God's word. You know, the, I, I just wrote down this little kind of paragraph. It says, the, the preaching, teaching, studying, and reading of God's word is powerful. It reveals much to us, who we are, what God's will is, how to please him, how, how are we doing it helps us not to harden our hearts. It comforts us. It helps us to strive to enter into this rest. It helps us believe. God's word does all those things. And we, ne we neglect it at our peril. All right, so what's all this mean right now in our lives? Well, one, there's that warning as Glenn so aptly spoke about last week, don't harden your hearts. Don't complain, don't grumble, don't get bitter against God. Keep short accounts with God. Trust him, trust God. Always be conscious of God in, in our life. Thank him, pray to him, draw close to him, love him, surrender to him, don't grumble, don't blame, don't doubt. Exercise those things. You know, you can exercise that. How, how many of you wake up every day and, and, and start thinking of things to thank God for that day? You know, that's how every one of us should start the day. Thinking of things to be thankful for to God. I think if we actually made a discipline of that, we probably wouldn't complain quite as much during the days, and we wouldn't, oh, there'd still be just as many terrible things happen during the day, but we wouldn't mind them quite as much. If we just exercise thankfulness a little bit more, make it a discipline in your life to keep yourself close to God, to thank him and pray to him and, and surrender yourself to him. Don't let the world creep in. Boy, we're terrible at this. We spend so much time thinking about the world and all the awful things of the world. What's the Bible say? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Spend more time thinking about who is in you than what is going on in the world. Don't let the world creep in. In other words, think like a believer. Keep God close all the time. Always be in God's word. You know, ultimately there is rest. There is confidence now 
peace now with God. And one blessed day, sometime in the future, in a time of God's choosing, it's nothing we have any control over, some blessed day, all of this will find its final fulfillment when God takes us into a whole different promised land, a whole new Eden, a new heaven and a new earth. And he tells us there in the book of Revelation that I will be their God, and they will be my people, and we will live with him eternally. That's the ultimate fulfillment of it. Close in a word of prayer. Hey, Father, I thank you for this word of yours. I thank you for the truth of it. Father, it is so hard for us. It's so easy for us to get caught up and get lost in, in the day and in the things of this world and all the, the terrible things that we see, and there's no doubt that they are terrible. But Father, you challenge us to keep our eyes on you, to never lose sight of you in the midst of this all, and that's how we are supposed to live our lives, and we can find rest if we are just willing to do that. I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help me. So Father, keep our, our, our eyes focused on you, just like Peter, when he stepped out of that boat to walk to you, and as long as he stayed focused, he was fine. The moment he lost his focus, the moment he took his eyes off of you, he lost that peace, he lost that confidence, and he started to fall. Father, please help us to keep our eyes on you. And Lord, if there are any here today who do not know Christ as, as their Savior, there's never been a time where they put their faith in Jesus Christ pray that something about this today would, would just touch their heart, that the Holy Spirit would just, just not let them be at rest until they would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Lord, I ask this all in your name. Mark? Today is uh, Communion Sunday, the last Sunday of the month. So uh, hopefully everyone got a little uh, cup. We have these all-in-one cups, most of you know, with the uh, bread on the top section and the, and the juice on the bottom. Um, so uh, we're going to have a time of communion, as uh, uh, Brian talked about. You know, this is uh, our remembrance of what Christ did to us so that we could enter into this rest, uh, that he um, died on the cross and, and his body was broken and his blood was spilt so that we could actually enter the enter the rest that uh, that he that God has prepared for us. So, in First Corinthians chapter eleven, Paul says, "For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you: that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.' Let's take the bread together." Then Paul continues in uh, verse 25. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together.
uh, Communion Sunday is also Benevolence Sunday. So we uh, traditionally have a collection for uh, benevolence on the, on the same Sunday that we do communion. We actually have a box back there where you picked up the cups um, that is uh, for a benevolence fund. It's a separate fund in addition to the regular offering for uh, those who are in the church and are in need or sometimes also in the community and have, have special needs above and beyond the normal uh, work of what we do. So I'm going to turn it back to Brian, and he's going to pray as we get ready to worship for the last song. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are very thankful for what you've done for us on the cross. Father, we remember that here today. Father, I just pray that each and every one of us would truly think about the, the, the beauty and the sacrifice of what it is that you did so that we could be saved. I think so often we go through this communion as just a, a rote thing. and We don't really think about what it is that you've done. But that is what you want us to do. You want us to remember. So, Father, help our minds now to turn to you in remembrance of what you've accomplished. And Father, we thank you and, and we... We will join our voices in praise to you, Father. Amen. Won't you stand, please?
I want to thank you all for being here today. Um, I'd just like you to think about the things we talked about today. Uh, if you're here and you have never really found rest in Christ, I, I'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, one of our other elders, somebody you know here, uh, please don't leave here until you talk to somebody about your need for Jesus Christ. And for the rest of you, those who have already put your faith in Christ, there's rest coming someday down the line. But you know, right now, where you're at, you can live in that kind of peace and that confidence in, in God right now in your life. You can have that sense of rest with Him. It depends on how close you are. Do you draw close or not? And that's, that's my prayer for you this week, that you, your hearts would really be trusting and resting in God as you go about this week. Practice that. Make it a discipline in your life to draw close to God each and every day. Thank you. You guys are dismissed.